Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where we are committed to providing our community with voices of conscience from an ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister here at Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and I will be moderator of today's forum. If you are listening to us on Minnesota Public Radio, we welcome you. We invite you to visit us in person in the future. Details about upcoming forums can be found online at www.ewestminster.org. We also invite you to contact the Minneapolis Public Library for information about a follow-up event to be held on environmental issues at the Downtown Library next Thursday, February 19th at noon. It's a privilege to welcome to the forum today Theodore Roosevelt IV. Mr. Roosevelt graduated from Harvard University in 1965 and joined the Navy then as an officer in underwater demolition. Following active duty, he joined the Department of State as a Foreign Service Officer. After receiving his MBA from Harvard, Mr. Roosevelt joined Lehman Brothers, where he has been working in domestic and international finance since 1972. In the tradition of his great-grandfather, President Theodore Roosevelt, who provided this country with its first national wildlife refuge and millions of acres of public land, T4, as he has been known, actively campaigns for bipartisan support of environmental issues. He is on the governing council of the Wilderness Society, is a director of the Institute of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming, and is a trustee of the Pew Center for Global Climate Change. He's involved in historic preservation in New York City, from whence he joins us today. He spoke at the Republican Party's National Convention in 2000 on the issue of the environment. Mr. Roosevelt joins us today to help us think about the concept of a land ethic and to discuss how the radical center movement might help us as a nation come together as conservatives, as environmentalists, and others to preserve both our land and the livelihood of the people who live and work it. Speaking on the topic of regaining the common ground, ladies and gentlemen, please help me to welcome to the Town Hall Forum, Theodore Roosevelt IV. Thank you very much, Tim, for that uh, warm uh, welcome. And what a pleasure it is to be here with you today. I can't help but notice what an extraordinary building this is. And for you, this may be an ordinary event because you can come into it every day. But as an outsider, my breath is literally taken away by these windows that I look at. I must begin here today at a church-sponsored event with a confession. When my staff and I discussed this speech, I surprised them by saying that I wanted to use a quote in it from the Gospel of St. Matthew. They didn't believe me when I cited chapter and verse, so he placed a wager. I know it isn't godly to wager on the Bible, and I certainly should admit to it here with a pastor behind me. But the prize for this wager was irresistible. If I were correct about chapter and verse, I would actually get to use the quote in this speech over my chief of staff's strong objections. So the next day I came into the office armed with grandfather's Bible. He was a brigadier general in World War II, and it is the Bible he carried into battle on Utah Beach. 
He was a stalwart champion of human rights and a combatant against anti-Semitism, even on the home front. I'm especially fond of his Bible. It's small, unprepossessing, covered in a soft brown leather that seems to invite the reader's hand home. And home, our territorial borders, our sanctuaries, our values, and allegiances and rights, our solace, pleasure, memory, and hope. Home is most often what we battle to defend. Grandfather didn't make it home from the European front. But at this juncture in our nation's story about its relationship with place and community, it felt important to me to begin with my hand at least metaphorically on his Bible, as he cared much about both. The quote that I won in the wager with my chief of staff may amuse you, especially for one embarking on a critique of both combatants in the field of environmental protection. The quote is actually an astoundingly difficult ethical prescription, one that is stated in different ways in many religions. Judge not, ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own? Bill Cronin, another environmentalist and a historian, rephrases Matthew in a modern idiom. In his book, Uncommon Ground, he writes, it is not enough to assert that something is natural and assume this will end all discussion of what is to be done. Once we recognize not all groups and cultures view nature in the same way, it becomes at least more complicated to assert that one's group, one group's idea of nature should take precedence over another's. As much as we might long for a world in which our own ideas were self-evident truth and those of our adversaries were false or downright evil, the world we actually inhabit almost never works this way. As a Republican and an environmentalist, I will make the attempt today, and apparently for a long time to come, to pull the moat out of both combatants' eyes and hope that I do not end up blinded in the process. As in all good stories, at the end of the moat-pulling travail, we will arrive at the rectification, what some are calling the radical center and others the third way. These disparate groups and efforts organize themselves roughly around what J. Ronald Engel, a professor of social ethics and the theology in Chicago, calls democratic ecological citizenship. He traces its roots here to the Midwest, the region of our country that most often acts as our national bellwether for moderation. In describing the campaign to save the Indiana Dunes, an 80-year-old struggle begun in 1917, he places that campaign and the environmental movement in the following context. As part of an insurgent movement in the Midwest to reform the democratic faith of the nation, rooted in the ethos and politics of progressivism, this movement sought to sever the identification of democracy with competitive individualism. It conceived the meaning of democracy to be that of the cooperative commonwealth. Some yoked the revolutionary ideas of freedom equality and fraternity to the ecological principles of unity and interdependence among all forms of being. It was this comprehensive vision of community that was associated with the dunes landscape. Today, there's probably no better exemplar of this comprehensive vision of community 
this philosophy of social action than the radical center movement, which is about a decade old. It rose primarily in hard-pressed rural communities, primarily logging communities, and it is premised on what my friend Dan Chemist describes as a democratic practice, acting from and speaking with the knowledge that we have a mutual stake in the shape of one another's lives. Rural communities that have long relied on one another to raise a barn or children or crops experience mutual dependency in the concrete ways in which they live. Mutual dependency is not an abstraction for them. It is how they know themselves, their neighbors, and their places. Radical center groups stay focused on this practice and what it necessitates, inclusiveness, collaboration, transparency, trust building, and a commitment to finding solutions. They assiduously avoid either utilizing or being co-opted by oppositional politics and rhetoric. In short, they are doing the hard, if forgotten work of a pluralistic society and a democracy. In my view, the third way or the radical center movement offers us the best hope for restoring a bipartisan, decent, <clears throat> and thoughtful discourse on the environment to our national agenda. It does this by moving toward that comprehensive vision of community, one that welcomes the legitimacy of multiple perspectives on the meaning of nature and our lives. Even when we set aside wilderness areas, we do so not because they serve an ecological function, which they do, but primarily because they involve the heart of the nation, what the American people tell themselves, tell themselves about themselves, how we know ourselves as a people, a nation that built its home in wilderness. Unfortunately, rural communities feel that environmentalists preference nature that is supposedly pristine and from which humans are either absent or erased. In their view, environmentalists devalue and marginalize the profound relationships that rural communities have with their homes. Bill Cronin poses the problem this way. How can a more self-critical understanding of what we mean by nature enhance our efforts to protect the environment in ways that are both sustainable and humane? The meaning that we ascribe to nature must be made both conscious and conscientious. Meaning may be transformed, it may be expanded, it may be renewed and revitalized and redefined, but it can never be dictated. It cannot be dictated to anyone, even if it is dictated by seemingly everyone. I've been critical of Republicans on the score of the environment since President Reagan and outspoken about it since the first President Bush. And I will shortly return to the conservative failure to articulate an ethical response for Republicans to environmental issues. But in first, incredibly, I seem to have a larger dragon to slay. The fact over the past two years, I've grown concerned about the environmental movement itself. There are those in the environmental movement who feel this is not the time to raise any criticisms. They felt the same way when the publication of Bill Cronin's book, Uncommon Ground, viewed by some as critical of the environmental movement, coincided with Newt Gingrich's ill-conceived and ill-tempered campaign against our nation's environmental protections. While those of us most committed to the environmental movement are furious with the Bush administration, what is equally true is that as the large environmental organizations ratchet up their public relations campaigns, those who see themselves as unfairly pilloried by these groups 
are also growing increasingly resentful and bitter. Unfortunately, these are most, these are most often hard-pressed rural communities that feel they are the easy scapegoats for the bad conscience of an urban elite who pass judgment on them from a comfortable and discreet distance while knowing nothing about the economic or physical constraints of their lives. The now <coughs> infamous Western bumper sticker, are you an environmentalist or do you work for a living, <coughs> expresses their disdain for a movement which they regard in its turn as disdainful of folks with dirt under their fingernails. In his book, Forcing the Spring, Robert Gottlieb sums up the criticism of the environmental movement this way. Their failure to incorporate equity or social justice considerations in selecting the issues they fight and their disregard for local cultures and grassroots concerns. As both sides in the environmental debates hunker down, indulging in the conviction that the other is the enemy, our divided nation loses. It loses time, momentum, and goodwill in addressing critical environmental and social issues that will affect all of us for a long time to come. No matter what the results of this year's presidential election, neither side is going to come up a winner on this issue given the mounting ill will on both sides. Now is exactly the time for all of us to engage in some hard self-assessment and perhaps dip into the more strenuously demanding liberal ethos of encompassing multiple perspectives. As Bill Cronin asserts, persuasion will never occur if all we do is assert the naturalness, naturalness of our own point of view. Or as my ranching friends tell me, listening with an agenda isn't listening at all. The resistance <clears throat> to acknowledging any legitimacy in the criticism from their opponents by the left or the right is discouraging. Sometimes it is also amusing. One of my critics on the left suggests that I've fallen prey to Karl Rove's brainwashing on environmental issues. While Mr. Rove's machinations and the estimations of some have certainly reached mythological proportion, I can assure you that his actual reach does not include myself. In fact, my criticism of the environmental movement originates far to the left of Mr. Rove. As shocking as this may be to some, while I am a Republican, my chief of staff is a liberal, Democrat, and a feminist, and a dedicated environmentalist. For the sake of this speech, I'll call her Lori, as she likes her anonymity. She was raised by her grandfather, a coal miner in Pennsylvania's Wyoming Valley. The Delaware Indians called the valley Toaminensing, meaning wild place, and they considered it too wild to enter. Its native ferocity later manifested in some of the bloodiest and most arduous battles for labor rights that ever took place in this country. Lori's grandfather was a highly respected leader in those struggles. With each new wave of immigrants into the valley, he fought hard against prejudice and for their inclusion in the coal miners' union. He said, we cannot get there unless we go there together. Out of concern for the escalating furor in the environmental wars, Lori opened our dialogue with rural communities. Interestingly, almost every rancher or logger with whom I spoke identifies her working class background as the reason for her unusual receptivity to their issues. Regrettably, it is a rarity in their experience with my fellow environmentalists. Another historian, Richard White, postulates that environmentalists have become alienated from heavily bodily labor 
blue-collar work because they associate it with environmental degradation. The possibility, apparently, that one could earn other than a subsistence-style living from nature sullies it. All that we associate with profit in the industrial world, a profit from which the agrarian world is largely excluded, collides with what has, which, with what has come to be associated with the sacredness of nature. Nature can have its worshipers, but not inhabitants and certainly not field hands. What I learned from Lori and our own limited but relatively successful outreach to rural communities is that truly listening to people results in embracing their problems as one's own. That we need to take a whole systems approach to ecology that doesn't place it in opposition to local cultures and values. That in short, as her grandfather would say, we can't get there unless we go there together. Unfortunately, the partnerships that many of the large environmental groups offer to rural communities seem mired in deeply paternalistic, and some would say, colonial attitudes. <coughs> Dana Alston, an African-American leader who raises similar complaints against environmentalists from the urban heartland, rejects that paternalism, asserting that minority communities will set their own agenda and seek out partnership, in her words, based on equity, mutual respect, mutual interest, and justice. Interestingly, this sentiment is echoed almost exactly by a rural leader who writes, we need equal partners, not just partners of convenience. One environmental activist, for instance, recently defended his own efforts at a community outreach by sending me a long list of what one of his ranching allies had done for him. It never occurred to him that one might ask in response, what have you done for the rancher? In fact, that is precisely one of the complaints among ranchers, that environmental groups are happy to use them as spokespeople in their own communities for the environmental agenda, while attacking them on the national front in ad-raising campaigns, as for instance, calling them cattle barons. Most ranchers will tell you that the only cattle barons they know are wealthy Easterners who've never fallen asleep in the saddle on the long ride home. Of course, this is not to say there aren't authentic community outreach programs among the large environmental NGOs. There are, and many of them are working hard at this. But from rural America, if you listen closely, you will hear, too little, too late. And it may quite literally be too late for them. Another environmentalist objected to my criticism with this query. Why should environmentalists compromise with ranchers? While one would hope that an answer based on democratic and humanistic values would be sufficient, here is a utilitarian answer. 90% of endangered species spend some part of their life cycle on private lands, mostly ranch, timber, and farm. 60% are found principally on private lands. Where ranches have been sold and subdivided into ranchettes, songbird deaths are exceeding birth rates. There is as much biodiversity in our rangelands as in protected areas and fewer invasive species. <clears throat> Many commentators believe that we have a 10-year horizon in which to turn around the loss of family farms and ranches before they disappear entirely from our national landscape. But that is the utilitarian answer. And it is precisely the rights preferencing of a utilitarian view of nature that severely impairs, if not entirely cripples, their discourse on our responsibilities to the rest of life on this planet. What we most often hear is how can conservatives not be for conservation? Many conservatives, such as myself, 
end up fuming over how Republicans are failing our own ethos and principles? How is it that conservatives, for instance, who believe that government must be prudent, behave so imprudently toward nature? How is it that Republicans seem to regard the environment, quite possibly the third most important issue facing the planet, as at best of peripheral concern and at worst as sentimental excess, a matter of personal virtue only? Unfortunately, in our fuming, we keep missing what is, we keep missing what is missing in conservative thought. While environmentalists fail to honor the full panoply of subjective values that the human community brings to nature, conservative thought has failed to find a trajectory out past defining nature by its usefulness to humans and into the intrinsic objective values of nature. It seems to be, to be beyond the scope of many on the right to say, for instance, that species extinction as a result of unrestrained human activity is immoral and indefensible that a refusal to seriously engage in a global effort to address climate change is unethical and imprudent. When we argue exclusively from a human-centered perspective, we confine our thoughts to a relentless feedback loop that is prone to measure values with the yardstick of short-term expediency, placing disproportional merit on elements of conservatism, such as property rights or the free market, at the expense of other elements, such as piety and responsibility. Granted, for instance, that developing market incentives and strategies for environmental protection should move us further toward that goal and indeed does provide very useful tools. Nonetheless, markets are not perfect and are not likely to become so. That's an economic precept out of which conservatives cannot seem to engineer themselves. More importantly, the market is not intergenerational. It is about what works today for today. This limitation restricts its service to ecology, which must also be about the deep past, as well as about sustainability into the distant future. This limitation also restricts the market service to the nation, which should be concerned with handing down to the next generation a country that is strong and prosperous, whole and secure. <clears throat> Just as I view the radical center movement as a corrective to the paternalism and cultural elitism of the environmental movement, I view Aldo Leopold's land ethic as a corrective to the reactionary excesses and the short-term expediency with which conservatives view nature. Aldo Leopold, also from the Midwest, was perhaps our most elegant, profound, and yet practical non-ideological thinker on the environment. He sought to elevate the status of the land itself as well as the biotic communities that share it with us, but he did not exclude or erase humans from the landscape. In fact, he relied on what may be considered an exclusively human activity, ethics, to reorient us towards a proper relationship with nature. He wrote, individual thinkers since the days of Ezekiel and Isaiah have asserted that despoiling the land is not only inexpedient, but wrong. Society, however, has not yet affirmed their belief. A land ethic, of course, cannot prevent the alteration, management, and use of these resources, but it does affirm their right to continued existence, and at least in spots, their continued existence in natural state. In short, a land ethic changes the role of Homo sapiens from conqueror of the land community to plain member and citizen of it. It implies respect for his fellow members 
and also respect for the community as such. With those words, Aldo Leopold laid upon us the complex duty of developing and sustaining this land ethic. It has been an elusive goal on at least two scores. First, as the intrinsic values of biotic communities continue to be undervalued or placed on a subpar level with inadequately defined economic values. And second, as the complexities of moving between the different scales of living, local and global, dispose us towards taking black or white positions. Just one quick example of that last. Should we protect old growth forests because they are ecological wonders that serve many utilitarian goals? And you have a problem where the surface rights, the land, the surface of the land is owned by the rancher. The mineral rights are owned by oil companies, or maybe owned by other people, but they have rights that are technically superior to the surface land right owners. The Radical Center is trying to adjust those rights, and that's going to take some uh, national legislation to get done but at least it's an attempt to rectify, uh, to make sure that the idea of exploiting energy is not done in such a way that it is resulting in incredible harm to the land. To what extent do you believe that our country's dependence upon fossil fuels for energy source, uh, to what extent is that driving the hardening of uh, positions in the environmental movement, the polarization to which you have referred? Um, Part of the problem is that we have an administration that does not look at energy in a global sense. The administration thinks it does that. The administration thinks that they understand energy uh, fairly well, but their positions, in my opinion, are intellectually inconsistent. How can we argue that we will get energy independence by drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, where we may have the equivalent of oil equal to our six months, maybe nine months of con consumption. How can we argue when we are 5% of the world's population, 4.84%, but we consume 25% of the world's uh, oil production? There's an imbalance there, and that's the imbalance that we need to rectify. We were talking, uh, Tim and I, were, we were talking, I believe that we have an unhealthy relationship with the OPEC countries where we've become too dependent on their oil, and they've done everything in their power to make us dependent on their oil. We need to rectify that relationship, and we need to put it on a more of an arm's length uh, basis. Uh, when I see the government of Saudi Arabia, and I happen to have a lot of very good friends in Saudi Arabia that I've known for 25 years now, but the government of Saudi Arabia is not performing the basic functions that a government should do, which is to provide a civil society for its people and you have 14,000 princelings who get the majority of the income that that country produces, and they make the wrong decisions. Um, I think that in terms of energy, we need to step back and say we need to spend the next 20 years, 30 years, however long it takes to slowly begin to get alternative energy sources, and that will take a time, significant time. But in the meantime, we've got to encourage conservation, very serious conservation and we have billions and billions of barrels of oil that are effectively not used if we engage in conservation. If we increase the insulation on a refrigerator, you will use less electricity. If you increase the insulation even on your stove, it will be more efficient and you use less natural gas or less electricity. We are nowhere near as efficient as we should be in using our, our energy. We are profligate and we are wasteful and we are creating burdens for the next generation 
because of that waste. The word sustainable gets thrown around a lot in environmental circles. Can you define for us what you mean by sustainability or sustainable? Good question. <clears throat> I think what I mean, and I'm not going to try to put words in the environmental movement's mouth, I think what I mean by sustainable is something that will last, a practice that will last and result in the resource, whether it be biodiversity, whether it be a watershed, that will remain in a healthy state for generation after generation. And if we are using a resource, and the idea of bequeathing to the next generation that resource in a state that is impaired, I think is fundamentally immoral. We should not do that. We are stewards, and we have a very important obligation to our children's children to bequeath to them an environment that is at least is in good shape if that's which we inherited. And sustainability means to me that we use the resource in such a way that we pass it down unimpaired or perhaps even improved to the next generation. They love you in Minnesota. <laughs> Throughout your remarks, uh, you have used theological language. You open with a text from Scripture, from Matthew's Gospel. To what extent are these environmental issues you're describing in uh, some way a spiritual question, spiritual issues? For me, they are spiritual uh, because I see and I feel a sense of awe, a sense of wonder when I'm in the out of doors. That may not be everybody's view. Uh, and for what for me is my view, my personal uh, view, doesn't necessarily, and I would not presume that it should be somebody else's view. Um, but I think many people do share a, a sense of awe of this extraordinary planet that we live on. Questioner writes, I'd like to believe that the radical center could build a new sense of common purpose, but it's hard for me to see how your quiet listening and your voice of reason are going to overcome the strident extremes. What steps do you propose to grow the radical center? Uh, a, number, a number of steps. <clears throat> We're, uh, I and others are working with the radical center. We have a plan where we can take some of their ideas. We want to try to bring it uh, to Washington in 2005 and try to have a uh, public agenda, uh, which we will use to try to educate the Congress and which we're going to try to use to educate the American uh, people. Um, it may be harder than I think, but unless we roll up our sleeves and unless we put our shoulder to the wheel, unless we try, we will not succeed. And I have a very strong confidence in the American people. Every once in a while people say, well, the American people can't understand that, it's too complicated. And that is wrong. The American people, they may get there slowly, but they will get there. And I have a great deal of confidence in the American people. The American people know what is right. The American people know what is wrong. And given the choice, given the explanation, they will take the time and they will get there. And I think the Radical Center is based on the precept that the American people will support them because what they are doing is reasonable, it's based on trust, it's based on respect, and it's based on a sense of community that includes all of us. And if I were a listener to today's broadcast, how would you, and I wanted to be involved in the Radical Center movement, what would you suggest I do as an individual? That's a very good question. Uh, one of the things that I think I would suggest <coughs> is to try to understand the nature of, the, of, the, of this environmental debate that we've described about, the right uh, and the left, 
and try to understand the complexities of it and try to understand how does it affect you in your everyday life? What, what are you supposed to do in your everyday life to be a better environmental citizen? Do you drive your car a little bit less frequently? Maybe you buy a different kind of car, but that can be dangerous. People should be able to choose to drive what kind of car that they want. Uh, what I would encourage people to do in terms of their everyday life is recognize that these issues are complex. Take the time to try to understand the nature of the complexity and take the time to get to know other communities that are different than yours. Get to know the African-American community. I'm not as good at this uh, practicing of what I'm going to say, but they get, to, get to know the African-American community and their concerns about environmental justice. Most of you, I assume, live in Minneapolis. And the questions of environmental justice, for example, exist in every urban center. Try to understand those, become part of that. And certainly, if you have the benefits of living in a rural community, understand the concerns of the rural community. You've referred several times to the polarization in the environmental movement between right and left. To what extent does that polarization merely reflect the generalized polarization in U.S. society or culture today? Or to what extent is that polarization inherent in the development of the environmental movement? Well, <clears throat> if you go back and look at the history of the environmental in the United, movement in the United States, um, it's actually a very old movement. It's a movement that began with people like Thoreau. Uh, it's a movement that began with people like Bierstadt, who did great uh, paintings of the American West. His paintings were so popular that they were brought back to restaurants in New York City, like Delmonico's, and people would pay a nickel to go in and look at them, like going to the movies in the, in the uh, 19th century. You also had some very interesting writers, uh, uh, George Bird Grinnell. Then you had you know, my great-grandfather, T.R. And the movement continued being, by and, large, by and large, a sort of bipartisan movement up through uh, Richard Nixon. Most of you probably know that Richard Nixon was responsible for clean air, clean water, the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency, uh, the Council on Environmental Quality, the National Environmental uh, uh, Policy Act, all signed under a president not particularly well known for his environmental concerns, but he understood it was good politics and it was good public policy. Then something happened and it became more polarized. Um, I think that something happened was partly because of a uh, concern on the conservative about uh, property rights. It was partly uh, an insensitivity shown to the rural community by people in Washington that had good, in the, on the environmental side, who had very good intentions, but the law of unintended consequences came and bit them big time. But I am convinced, utterly convinced, that the vast American people, the vast percentage of American people, are in the center, are concerned about this, these issues, and do not like this polarization. And one of the things that I hope that I leave you with is that you will not put up with it any longer, that you don't want to see this polarization. And if people engage in polarization or demonizing their opponents, tell them that it's wrong. And if we bring people back to the center, we will all benefit. Your great-grandfather was known for many things, including his environmental concerns, but also as a hunter. I don't know if you hunt or not, but uh, what would you, what's the impact of the hunters uh, of this nation on the radical center movement or vice versa? Well, <clears throat> you know, this is, this, is a, this, is a, this is a hard question, but it's a very good question. Hunting 
is politically incorrect in New York City. If you tell somebody that you're a hunter in New York City, you're, you're a pariah. I happen to be a hunter. I also will point out to the people who will criticize hunters that hunting done the right way is an extremely ethical sport. It's a sport in which you pay tribute to that which you are chasing. Many times I've had an opportunity to shoot something and I haven't. It just didn't seem right. I wasn't, I'm not sure. But there are other times when I've shot, whether it be a deer or a duck, and I've sat down and celebrated that hunt with my wife and a bottle of wine and friends. And in a sense, I hope that I'm celebrating, and I hope that I can convince you, that I'm celebrating the wonder of nature, uh, the ability to go out and see this wonderful uh, creation. It is paradoxical that you're celebrating nature and you are taking something's life. That's a paradox, and I can't fully explain it. Uh, I think, though, that the Radical Center and the environmental movement have to come together in a sense that the only people that this administration will listen to in terms of the environment are the hook and bullet crowd. Now, that's a pretty powerful crowd. Now, they need to be convinced that the environmental movement cares about their concerns and doesn't look down on them, and they need to be empowered that we believe in what they are trying to do. We, we support fishing, we support hunting. Uh, and if we can come together, if we can come together in the center, that will be a very, very powerful movement. Thank you, Theodore Roosevelt IV. Mr. Roosevelt has spoken to us today about regaining the common ground. We extend our thanks to him and to you, our listeners. Join us in the Westminster Town Hall Forum next on March 4th when our guest will be Amy Chua, author of World on Fire. Thank you very much.